Good morning, Maranatha Grace. Good morning, Good morning to you, uh, those at home watching online. Very thankful to preach God's word this morning. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Eric and I serve as a youth and one of the staff here. And very thankful for this opportunity to worship together. As we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us now to fear you, to be in awe of you, to revere you as we hear your word preached. We lift up all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And please follow along as I read the passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work at your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Maranatha Grace, what are we known for? As a church, as the body of Christ, what are we known for? Are we known for our hospitality and how well we welcome newcomers? Are we known for our church's mission and our biblical values? Are we known for our ministries like MKids and REACH? While everything that I listed are important for the church, I want to ask this question. Are we known for our obedience like the Philippians? Are we known for our obedience like the Philippians? And as I thought about this church that I love, and as I assessed how we are doing as a whole, and as I studied this passage, I realized my honest answer would be no. My hope is that as we look into these verses, we would see why, and that we would humbly examine our hearts according to His Word this morning. In light of Christ's humble obedience in the previous passage, Paul begins to exhort the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And you can sense Paul's deep love, his gratitude for the Philippians, even in just this half of the first verse. He calls them, my beloved. They were really precious to Paul because it was the first church he founded in Europe, and we see that in Acts 16. And by God's grace, they were a healthy church. And while in prison, Paul encourages them through these verses, saying, don't stop in your obedience. Don't live in your past glory years. Don't let your guard down. Even though I am away, continue to live out your heavenly citizenship. Remember Christ's humility as you strive for unity. Keep on living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now the words obey and obedience are words that are often said in the church, but I realize there's a lot of misunderstanding on what these words mean biblically. It's important for us to clarify these words because the two verses today focus on obedience. First, biblical obedience is not just do it. Many of us think of obedience in this way, at least functionally. 
If we think obedience to the Lord is just about sheer willpower, it will quickly lead to pride and self-reliance and a looking down on others who aren't where you are at. And for those who aren't just doing it, there will be great discouragement, great guilt, great shame. Some of you are extremely strong-willed and might be able to do it just, may be able to just do it day after day, month after month, year after year when it comes to a Bible reading plan or any Christian discipline or putting off certain sins. Yet never experience joining the Lord and growing Him. Titus 2, 11 to 12 shows that our motivation for why we say no to ungodliness and why we say yes to godliness is the grace of God. It's never willpower or self-reliance. Secondly, biblical obedience is not just about outward appearance. This is what the religious leaders in Jesus' time were guilty of. If we read through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't compare the righteous and the outright wicked, but he compares those who obey from the heart and those who only obey outwardly. These religious leaders obeyed outwardly when it came to giving, prayer, and other commandments, but their hearts were so far from the Lord. And if we are not careful, we can easily believe that obedience is about acting a certain way outwardly, that obedience is about behavior modification, while never addressing one's heart. But like the just-do-it attitude, biblical obedience is not just about the outward appearance. Number three, biblical obedience is, a, is about remembering who has authority. Biblical obedience is remembering who has authority. The word obey shows up 21 times in the New Testament. And 20 times it is used in the context of authority. Throughout the Gospels, we see unclean spirits, the winds, and the seas obeying Jesus. Each and every one of these miracles point to the divine authority of the Son of God. In Ephesians 6, we see the command, Children, obey your parents, and slaves, obey your masters. In Hebrews 13, 17, the author encourages the saints to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. These examples show that to obey is to carefully listen and act under the one who has authority. But a very important word to those in positions of authority, to fathers and mothers, to those who oversee others in the workplace, and to the elders and leaders of our church, including myself, we must remember that the authority does not end with us. As we lead, we are all called to be in obedience to the Lord, who has the ultimate authority. This means that we can lean on the Lord who is in control and trust in Him. This also means that we will be held accountable to the Lord. And we are not given this authority for personal gain or to abuse and to hurt the saints and damage our witness as God's people. Lastly, Biblical obedience is based, is living based on your identity. Consider the Israelites when the Lord saved them from Egypt's oppressive rule. Before the Ten Commandments are given, they are reminded of who the Lord is and who they are. I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Israelites were no longer slaves, but they were people saved by God's grace and mercy. And in light of their undeserved salvation, they were to obey and be a light onto the world. And this is also the case in the New Testament. One of the many examples, one of the many examples is Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Our motivation for obedience is based on who we already are in Christ by grace through faith. Like the Philippians, our obedience is based on our heavenly citizenship under the authority of Jesus. Now Paul shows us in the following verses what it looks like to obey, how we are to obey, and why we are to obey. First, what does it look like to obey? We obey by working out our salvation. I've tried a couple of times, Ricky might judge me, I've tried a couple of times to work out during this quarantine. My original manuscript said that I tried many times, but Sana told me to stop lying. So I changed it. Now when I tried to work out, I'd set a goal, and it would often be too lofty. And one of the things I tried was running from home to church. Google Maps says it's about two and a half miles away. Some of you guys know I live in Englewood. So it's not an impossible run. But what I forgot was that there's a ridiculously steep hill that connects Englewood to Englewood Cliffs. So I ran about a mile, and I felt my body falling apart. So I just turned around and walked back home. I probably just ate like a can of Pringles or something, right? This is the very attitude and approach that Paul is speaking against when it comes to working on our salvation. Right, this is the very attitude that he is speaking against when it comes to our salvation. To work out means to make a continual and intentional effort to bring something to completion. Paul is commanding that every effort be made to bring the gift of salvation to completion. He is saying, don't make excuses. Don't sit back and relax. Don't settle or give up when circumstances get busy or difficult or when you don't feel like obeying. Press on and work at your faith until the end. Listen to Paul's own attitude on working out his salvation in 1 Corinthians 9.24-27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I shared I'm a youth director. So for you younger folks, the phrase, keep grinding, Keep grinding might be a faithful modern-day translation. Put your head down and keep grinding out your salvation. And for you John Piper folks, Eric Park, right? <clears throat> he says passivity in the pursuit of holiness is not what the Bible teaches. Paul is not encouraging us to work for our salvation or to work to keep our salvation. 
He's also not saying that you can work out your salvation perfectly and without sin, or that it's a competition. The Word of God is very clear that it is only by grace that one is saved, and the righteousness of Jesus clothes us. What Paul is commanding is that we actively work out this truth that we've been delivered from the domain of sin and darkness into the kingdom of this humble king in every aspect of our lives daily. This call to work out our salvation is important because it should serve as a wake-up call for those of us who take our salvation too lightly. Some of you haven't grown in months or years. And rather than being concerned and making every effort to work through it, you push this salvation aside and deal with it when it's a little more convenient or even worse, just never deal with it. Just think about a sick baby who doesn't grow for months or years. Think about how foolish it would be to push the baby aside and deal with it later on. None of us would ever do that. Yet when it comes to working out our salvation, we are quick, so quick to do that. Many of you have succumbed to this idolatry of comfort and we think that suffering and trials are the worst possible things that could happen. And when it does come, rather than seeing it as an opportunity to expose idols in one's heart and to grow in your trust in the Lord, you question God's goodness, you grow bitter or angry, and you give up. This verse makes clear to continually and intentionally make every effort to bring your salvation to completion in every circumstance, good or bad. Thankfully, Paul was not just encouraging one Philippian brother or sister in Christ, but he was writing to the church, which means that we work at our salvation together. What can get lost in a passage like this is the corporate aspect of this command. Every pronoun that's referring to the Philippians is plural, showing that it is a whole church effort when it comes to working out our salvation. That's why my original question of are we known for our obedience is not just for us to hear as individuals, but we are to hear that as a corporate body. So church, as Paul lovingly encouraged the Philippians, I call you, I call us, myself included, to work out our salvation because this really is a matter of spiritual life and death. As God's people, working at our salvation is not an option. It's not just for mature Christians. All of us must. We are commanded to work out this salvation together. Secondly, how are we to obey? We are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. I've been reading through Proverbs, and one of the themes that constantly come up is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Like these Proverbs, Paul is not encouraging worldly fear, saying that we should be in constant anxiety and nervousness. 
Rather, the fear that Paul is talking about is one of awe and reverence. There are two people I came to appreciate very much during this quarantine. And just a disclaimer, it's not Tana. I, I do appreciate my wife, but it's not Tana, right? Julie Andrews and Roger Federer, okay? I watched The Sound of Music for the first time in my life during the quarantine, and I was amazed with the singing and the creativity of the songs. Even yesterday, right before we started our men's Hebrew study, Pastor Justin's daughter, Lonnie, she popped up into the room right during our Zoom call while singing Doa Deer. Like, she only knows a hundred words, and Doa Deer, a female, there is like five of them, right? So it means something when a two-year-old is singing a song written 55 years ago. I also started playing tennis, again, since it's one of the sports where you can social distance, and I cannot count how many Roger Federer clips I've watched. There's something, for you guys who play tennis, you don't even have to play tennis, and just watch Roger Federer. There's something about his backhand swing, it just it melts my heart, it moves me, it, makes my jaw dry. It is, so I watch tutorial after tutorial and fast forward, back, fast forward, replay, broken down clips to figure it out. Julie Andrews' voice, the creativity of the songs in the movie, the stunning scenery of Austria, Roger Federer and his background, a backhand. If we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, we will ultimately see that God is responsible for all of this. We confess that He is the creator of all things. He is the one who's created all things. We are to be in awe and reverence of Him because not only has He created all things, this creator is also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The one who had the plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. The one who is holy, holy, holy and worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Such a fear is foundational for the Christian life, and without it, one cannot grow in godly wisdom and work out their salvation. And this fear goes hand in hand with trembling. I think one of the best examples of what it means to tremble is Isaiah in Isaiah 6. In his vision, the holy God called Isaiah to be his mouthpiece. And as a seraphim were worshiping, the temple, the doorpost, they shook and it filled up with smoke. And I imagine Isaiah's knees grew weak while crying out to the Lord and trembling. He recognized his sinfulness and weakness as he stood before the Lord. And he understood in that moment just how holy God is and how sinful he was. That is a picture of trembling. It's with this fear and trembling that we are to work out our salvation. It is with this awe and reverence for the Lord and a very real understanding of the sinful self that we are to obey. And this fits right in with the previous passage where we see Jesus as the exalted king, that before him every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, this is not figurative language, 
but it is an actual picture of what will happen because Jesus is that worthy of worship. Several weeks ago, I went to my doctor for an annual checkup. My blood test results came back after a week. And the doctor told me that I was pretty healthy. He told me to run more, right? But he said that I was pretty healthy. My cholesterol was good. My blood sugar levels were good. After that news, I had this feeling, this invincible feeling that I could eat whatever I want, right? So you know what I, immediately, what I did immediately after the phone call? I laid down on my apartment floor and I ate a bag of Sour Patch Kids, right? <laughs> we hear that God is gracious, that God is loving, that we are forgiven in Christ, and yes, all of this is true. And while such good news should compel us to obey, it is often that we see it as a permission to lower the standard of holiness that God calls us to. We hear of this good news and we let our guard down. And we do it in all sorts of ways, in plain sight or hidden. We begin to justify why we aren't working at our salvation. In other words, we forget that we are to fear and tremble before the Lord, and we make excuses for the sin in our lives. As we think about obeying in fear and trembling, I want to read a handful of statements to help us examine our hearts. And this list is by no means exhaustive. And I encourage you to stop yourself before you are even tempted to think about how others are guilty of a list of sins. I encourage you to examine your own heart. I go about my day with little or no thought of God and His glory. I make excuses like my schedule's too busy to justify not spending time with the Lord. I invest in my career my own future or my children's futures more diligently than I invest in our relationships with the Lord. I don't live above reproach when I'm at work or with certain groups of friends because I don't want to seem too holy. I look down on others who don't work as hard as me, who aren't as mature as me, or who disagree with me. I'm anxious and full of worry because I don't trust that God is in control. I am discontent and ungrateful with where the Lord has placed me or what he's given me. I love money and the things it can buy more than the Lord. I envy others and I'm not truly thankful when others succeed or get what I want. I go to great lengths for people's praise and approval. I'm quick to anger, especially with those closest to me. I speak words that are hurtful and break others down. I lack self-control when it comes to eating or spending time in media. I will go and do anything to avoid trials and hardships and make sure I stay as comfortable as possible. Those are just some questions for us to consider personally. But I want to ask some questions for us to consider corporately as we gather together as one body? Is your mind wandering and thinking of all sorts of things rather than being present during CWG? Is corporate worship time time to have casual conversations in the hallway or in the cry room? 
is prayer time, break time for coffee or the bathroom? Is coming late to CWG or not being at CWG not that big of a deal? Is corporate prayer gathering, praying together with other saints, with other believers, just an option only if you have time or energy? For those at home, are you skipping the stream to certain parts when it's boring? Are you laying down while watching the service like it's a TV show? Are you cooking or doing something else while streaming the service like it's background music? Is your choice to be at home driven by worldly fear or idols of comfort and maintaining a certain quality of life rather than a love for the Lord and our neighbors? Church, I call all of us to examine our own hearts with fear and trembling. Yes, I have no idea what it's like to care and get kids ready. I don't know what every person's situation is like. And no, I'm not calling you to be foolish and reckless and pretend like everything is fine. But what I do know is that we are prone to wander. That we are prone to leave the God that we love. I do know it's easy to deceive ourselves and to justify our own sins. I do know that we can go on for months and years and hide these sins and never address them. I do know it's easier to point fingers at others than to deal with your own sins. So I call you, church, examine your own heart with fear and trembling and confess these sins before the Lord. Where in your life are you not working out your salvation? What excuses are you making for the sins in your life? The Bible calls us to be alert, to be watchful, and to put every sin to death. We are to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Every sin, every selfish inclination, Every wicked thought that goes unchecked reveals a lack of fear and trembling. It shows that the Lord is not worthy enough, that He's not powerful enough, that He's not trustworthy enough, that He's not beautiful enough, that He's just not enough. And as I mentioned, Paul was writing to the church, which means that we don't put sin to death alone. This means that we must help one another obey in fear and trembling. We are responsible. It is our duty. It is a command for us to call one another out in sin and to point one another to the promises and hope we have in Jesus. And in humility, like Christ's humility, we call one another out not because we are better off than them or to put others down, or to put ourselves above them, but because we desire to see them grow in the Lord. That is our ultimate desire, because there is no greater joy than to be in the Lord. Imagine what it would look like, church, if we just stopped talking about speaking the truth in love, and if we really, really started doing it. Here's an application. After this worship gathering, choose one, two, or three people who know you well, and who won't be afraid to be honest with you, your spouse, your family, one of the church leaders, other brothers and sisters in Christ, and ask these two questions. Am I working out my salvation in fear and trembling? 
number one. And number two, are you working out your salvation in fear and trembling? And I encourage you to listen. Whether it's your spouse or child or a fellow brother or sister in Christ, don't just brush it off. Don't just say, you do you, I do me. Don't try to defend it or justify it. Don't make excuses. Instead, let's see it as the Lord's kindness toward you. And let's examine your heart according to God's word. And ask the Lord to help you to turn away from that sin. Some of the greatest lessons I've learned in ministry and life was when youth students called me out for my own sins. And I'm grateful, so grateful, lessons I still cling to today, when the, that these 14, 15-year-olds were bold enough to speak the truth and love to me. We obey by working at our salvation, and we work out this salvation in fear and trembling. Lastly, why are we to obey? We are to work at our salvation, for God is at work in you. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Commentators have talked a lot about how to make sense of verses 12 and 13, and how to work through this tension of God's role and our role in sanctification. Is it God at work, or am I at work? Is God more responsible, or am I more responsible? And one of the ways we try to deal with it is by limiting the ways God can work in us. And we treat Him as a, a spiritual assistant. We just might believe God will help you. He'll help you along, but it's really up to you. And the other side of the spectrum is to take on the mindset that it's ultimately up to God anyways. So let's just sit back, see how He works in us. Let go, let God. Our passage speaks against that. It makes clear that we are both at work. God works and we work. Both are responsible. And can we fully understand this? No. There is no way that we can understand this with our limited minds. But it would be wrong of us to try to solve this tension by emphasizing more one side than the other. Because that is not what this passage does. It is helpful to know that the word work, which appears twice in verse 13, is different from the word work out in verse 12. The Greek word for work in verse 13 is where we get the English word energy from. And this helps us understand what God's role is, what God is actively doing. Like an electrical current that brings energy to a light bulb to make it shine, God is the one who enables us to work at our salvation for His glory. And this is what the Lord promised to do in the New Covenant as we read in Ezekiel 36, 26-27. And I, the Lord, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, with, uh, heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Look at everything the Lord does in this new covenant by grace through faith. Look at how active He is. Look at the ways He works in His people. This sanctification 
is one part of the full salvation we have in Jesus. This full salvation includes our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. This might help you understand. Uh, Sana and I, we got a Costco membership during the quarantine. And I'm sure like 99% of you might know or would know what I'm talking about. I noticed that while I was waiting online to get my receipt checked, there's a bunch of booths that you see, right? There's a tire center and all these different booths, right? like home repair, da-da-da. And one of the booths was Costco Travel, right? And you can see ads for all-inclusive vacations to all these different locations, right? All-inclusive vacations to all these different locations, right? And each package included the hotel accommodations, car rentals, jet ski, meal, like all these different things, right? Everything was included. This is the case with our salvation in Jesus. We are justified, we are being sanctified, and we will one day be glorified. It's all included. When the Lord saves us, He's promising to do all of this. He doesn't just pick and choose which promises to give, but He justifies us, He sanctifies us, and He will glorify us. And this is consistent with other scriptures when it comes to our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In John 17.17, 17, Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. These verses show that the Lord is more committed to your sanctification than you yourself are. He is more committed to making you blameless and innocent in children of God without blemish to present us as a perfect bride of Christ. Our working out is based on this promise that God is working in us. As you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, it also reassures you that God is working in you. There are many times when we feel like not obeying, right? Let's be honest. There are many times we don't feel like obeying. But it's in those moments when we obey not based on emotions or willpower, but based on the truth of God's word. Based on this truth that God is working in us. And it's in those times that we see God's power at work in us. Ask any mature believer, and they will say that working at one's salvation is so hard. And at times, it seems impossible. You don't have to be a missionary to some remote village in South America to find out that this call to work at our salvation is not easy. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow the Lord each day. This is not an easy call. And if you're really trying to obey, if you're really trying to love the Lord and love our neighbors in the way that the Lord calls us, there's really no way to do it apart from relying on the Lord. It is impossible if God is not at work in you. This truth that God is at work in us should humble us. It should keep us from any pride because the Lord is responsible for the good works and the spiritual fruit in the lives of every believer. As it says in John 15, 5, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. For that reason, there's absolutely no boasting allowed. 
We cannot boast in ourselves. This truth is also a promise, though, that even when you think or when you feel or even falsely believe that the Lord has abandoned you, we can cling to verses like Philippians 1.6, where Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who justified you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise that the Lord will not forsake. That is a promise that we can lean on, trust in. While preparing this message, I spent a lot of time thinking about why many of us struggle, don't, may not work at our salvation. And I came across this line while reading the book Gospel Eldership for Our Elders Training. Richard Lovelace writes, Spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. Spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. Let me rephrase rephrase his statement for this message. True obedience, true working out of one's salvation, flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. I think many of us boil down the Christian life to the motto, be like Jesus, act like Him. And we see it in the ways that we counsel and encourage others. Just be more like Him, work harder, be like Him, act like Him. Now, there isn't anything wrong with this on the surface, but if this is what it's all, if this is what it's all about, Jesus then is just a model. He's just an example to us. And if we're really honest, if we talk, like, take this a little further, Jesus fails. He fails as a model in many ways. He was never married. He's never had kids. And he's not a woman. If he's just a model or an example, it simply won't be enough to compel us to obedience. But in last, week, last week's passage, lies our reason for why we work at our salvation. Last week's passage shows us that it's not a model or an example that we need. But what we desperately need is a Savior and Lord. What we desperately need is salvation. We don't need someone to imitate. We don't need an example to follow. We need a Savior and Lord. And this Savior and Lord came in the person of Jesus, the perfect Son of God. And His humility was perfectly exemplified as He endured death on the cross for our sins and took on the wrath that we deserve. And God the Father, fully pleased with His sacrifice, exalted Him and gave Him the name above all names. Paul reminds us through this hymn that Jesus is that worthy to be obeyed. In light of such a great sacrifice, the question isn't so much, why aren't you working out your salvation? But it's, how can you not? How can you not look at such humility? How can you not look at such beauty? How can you not look at such sacrifice and work out your salvation? 
I believe we ultimately fail to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because we don't grasp just how glorious this truth of being in union with Christ is. We fail to see just how life-changing this salvation is. Living in sin is far more gratifying because Christ is not enough. And we fail to see how every desire that our hearts long for and every idol that we have It's satisfied in Jesus. But this is not the case of Paul. It is because of this great salvation, it is because of this great truth that he's been united with Christ, that he could write so boldly early in his letter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Once again, this is not figurative language. His union with Christ was so real to him He knew that in life or death, his life was hid with Christ on high. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Maranatha, what would it look like if we changed our mindset from be like Jesus to abide in Jesus? What would it look like if we changed our mindset, our understanding of grace from some superpower to help us obey to the gift of Jesus, our Redeemer, the perfect Son of God? What if we changed how we encourage one another by helping one another live out these deep truths of what it means to live in Christ? I believe such efforts would grow us into a people who work at our salvation with fear and trembling in whatever circumstance. And I believe the Lord would work in us so that we would be a church known for our obedience. So that we'll be a church that is known for working at our salvation in fear and trembling, for He is at work in us. To close, I ask each of you to take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians 2. Whether it's on your phone or physical Bibles, It will be up here. It might be a little bit too small for you to read here. For a few minutes, I want you to read Philippians 2, 5 to 13. But focus on 5 to 11. Reflect on the humility of Christ, on who He is and what He has done. And if while reading this passage, you think in any way, that's nice, or this isn't that big of a deal, right then we see a lack of fear and trembling. Right then, that is, an, that is proof that you need to confess before the Lord. And as you read this passage, reflect and ask the Lord to fill you with gratitude and ask Him to make more real in your life this union that we have with this exalted Lord.